From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. Every organization has something that you can do today that will be a move towards greater inclusion. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and for the first time in in more than two years, I am recording an intro to this podcast within the studio built at uh, 1299 Church Road in Wincote, Pennsylvania, and not in my home about 15 minutes away. So hi, studio. Good to be back in you. I'll be joined today by Warren Hoffman and Miriam Steinberg Egith to discuss their Evolve essay, Building a Truly Diverse and Inclusive Jewish Community. This essay is adapted from their book, Warm and Welcoming, How the Jewish Community Can Become Truly Diverse and Inclusive in the 21st Century. So check out the Evolve essay, but I highly recommend the book. My rabbi, Jason Bonder, and I studied a few chapters Havruta style, and I think we each really got something out of the process. The book features chapters about LGBTQ Jews, interfaith families, Jews of color, millennials and Gen Z, people with disabilities, and also looks at things including marketing and, and communications and, and, and other aspects you might normally not normally think of as being, being part of the warm and welcoming package. And it's got, as Warren says, chapters written by some really established voices like Jody Bromberg and Edith Klein and younger, less known people. And from different points of view, the book really investigates what Jewish organizations mean when they say they're warm and welcoming and whether they're living up to it. Becoming warm and welcoming might just feel on a first reading like a never-ending task. And actually, the editors, Warren and Miriam, might agree because um, they view warm and welcoming more as a process than a state of being. And we're, we're going to hear more about that. And by the way, there are plenty of examples within the book of Jewish communities doing things right, and there's much to emulate. One thing I came away with from reading the book, reading the essay and this interview, was just how many people have at one time or another felt excluded or not exactly embraced in, in a particular Jewish community. Miriam and Warren are really glass half full kind of people. And I'd like to think deep down, so am I. But they were being optimists much more comfortably. They view the ubiquity of these kinds of experiences not as a reason to give up on Jewish communities, but to celebrate how much we have in common and recognize the roads so many Jewish communities need to travel and are traveling, are committed to traveling. This is an optimistic book and an optimistic interview as much as my inclinations towards cynicism might have, might have tried to drag it into pessimism, I don't think I succeeded. So we have a link in the show notes to the publisher's websites where you can buy the book. Warren and Miriam have generously provided a discount code for Evolve listeners. Enter R-L-F-A-N-D-F-3-0 at checkout for 30% off your purchase. That's R L F A N D F. 30 at checkout. As a reminder, all of our essays can be found at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. 
reading Miriam and Warren's essay, and if you go even further, the book, we'll just give you a, a listener reading experience. One, you can take back to your synagogue, your Jewish community, whatever aspect of Jewish life you're involved with. Okay, now to our guests. Miriam Steinberg Egith has been an important fixture in the professional Jewish community in Philadelphia for more than 15 years. She's been on staff at the Hillel's Jewish Graduate Student Network, the Center City Kahila Coordinator, and has served the Board of Rabbis of Greater Philadelphia. For more than a decade, she's written a must-read advice column, Miriam's Advice Well, for my former paper, The Jewish Exponent. And this doesn't all quite capture the role she plays as a connector of and champion of the Jewish community. And just so you know, the two of us do serve together on JPRO's local committee, which is a national organization that serves and connects Jewish professionals. And Miriam currently serves as strategic manager at Hadar. Warren Hoffman is the executive director for the Association for Jewish Studies in New York. He holds a PhD in American literature from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Warren also has more than 15 years of experience in the Jewish arts, academic, and nonprofit sectors. In Philly, he was the Associate Director for Community Programming for the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia, and also served as the Senior Director of Programming for the Gershman Y. He is also the author of the book, The Passing Game, Queering American Jewish Culture, and The Great White Way, Race and the Broadway Musical, which was published in 2020. Warren also partnered with us last year in producing the episode, America's First Bot Mitzvah. So go, go back to the archives to check it out. We'll also put it in the show notes. Okay, Miriam, Warren, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having us. We're glad to be here. Yep, thanks, thanks for inviting us on. No, this is, this is great. I've known, I've known you both in, in one form or another for, for a long time now. I think Warren, Warren and I were just trying to calculate the years and it, it's great to to have you in this format, to have this discussion. I've, I've, I've told you both off air. I think, I think it's a really important book and document you've put out into the Jewish world. And, and I'm definitely going to encourage people not only to read the Evolve article, but to, but to buy and, and, and read the book and, and, and get it in front of their, their organization's board. So, so thanks, thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. So much I want to I want to talk about. I'm sure we we won't scratch the uh, the list of questions I prepared. Um, I think a, a logical place to start is 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 just to get into. It seems to me you you've really um, articulated what you hope to be a paradigm shift in how Jewish organizations think about and do warm and welcoming. So can you just start us out and and what how do you think about warm and welcoming and, and, and what are you trying to get others to think about? So the title of the book itself is um, a, a little bit of a, a play on the phrase warm and welcoming because what Miriam and I both realized and saw as Jewish communal professionals is that many organizations were using this term again and again. If you go to, I feel like almost any a website of a Jewish communal organization, you'll see the term warm and welcoming on their website. And yet many of these organizations that have the best of intentions were still having these missteps on how to really create an environment in which people 
of all different backgrounds and needs and, and, and walks of life felt truly included. So we're sort of uh, pushing back a little bit and saying, and holding up a mirror maybe and saying, what's mm. the work that organizations need to do and continue to do on an ongoing basis to make their spaces more inclusive? I really think that all Jewish organizations aspire to do the right thing when it comes to inclusion. And I think that many of them do not have the resources or the tools or the models to know what to do or to even know what they mean when they're saying warm and welcoming. Uh, Ward and I have done a number of programs with Jewish professionals since the book came out. And one of the questions that we open with is, does your organization describe itself as warm and welcoming? Hmm. And as Warren mentioned, the numbers are overwhelmingly yes. Uh, and then we say, what do you mean by that? And even just with that title, getting people to go below the surface, it is not enough just to describe yourself that way. You have to have something behind it. And so the way the book is structured with several different chapters about demographics and identity, and then chapters about other ways in which Jewish communal organizations are structured that can either lead to a genuine feeling of welcoming or perhaps a feeling of exclusion, uh, gives organizations the language and the models and the framework to think about what it really means. It's not enough to say it. So how can you really put that into practice? Warren, you, you start out with a really potent anecdote that I feel like anybody who's walked into a synagogue could could probably identify with where, I mean, you don't name the place, you don't name the time, but you sort of show up and nobody, like, I'm going to say it intentionally, nobody says boo to you because you describe yourself almost as feeling like, like a ghost in the, in this space. And Miriam, I don't, I don't know if you've had similar experiences as well. I think, I think, Certainly. Talked, I think you've talked about that. And I wonder what it says that this feels like a universal experience and also what it means if two folks who've, who've spent their lives working in the Jewish community, who sort of, you're, you're both, you know, you're both white and, and, and cisgender sort of present as quote unquote mainstream looking Jews. Like if, if, if you feel like that, how, you know, how do even more marginalized folks feel? I, I, I guess I'm asking, like, it just, it just seems like a big mountain to climb to, to, to make these experiences less universal. Yeah. I think that you, you really identify something that we come and our contributors come to many different at many different points during the book um, that we show up with who we are and organizations welcome us with who they are right and and sometimes it's more successful than others even in that anecdote that Warren starts with i don't believe that the people at that synagogue were intentionally trying to make him feel othered i really don't and at the same time, I think for Jewish communal leaders to be able to read that story and say, oh, I've had that experience as you know, the professional who didn't stop what I was doing to greet the newcomer walking in and look, the, look at the impact that that could have had. Um, I think that kind of peeling back that curtain on some of those experiences that are both entrenched from sort of the user end and the professional end uh, gives everyone who encounters this book, the opportunity to think about their actions in a new way. We really don't intend this book to make anyone feel bad, to make any organization feel like they are lacking in their 
mandate to welcome people. And at the same time, we want to say, no matter where you are on this journey as an organization of becoming more inclusive, there is more you can do. Um, you know, there are places that are very far into this process and have their own diversity committees and have really, really done this work. And there's still more they can do. Um, and there are organizations who have said and who have said to me, we're small. We don't have a lot of resources. We really can't do these things. We're just doing the best with what we can. And, and for both, organ both types of organizations, I really want to say there's more you can do. There's more you can learn. There's more places we can all go on this journey of making the Jewish community and people who seek out Jewish community you know, able to come together in this way that, that unfortunately isn't always the case. I guess I'm curious, as you, as you said about writing this book, how do you figure out what, what topics to include, what populations to cover, who to, who to reach out to, to try to, try to write? I mean, how, does, how did that all work? You know, one thing that we're particularly proud of with this book is all the different ways that Miriam and I were thinking about diversity. And there's so much talk nowadays, and rightly so, um, uh, around Jews of color and, and issues of race in not just the Jewish world, but in, in all of society. And uh, we, of course, have a chapter uh, uh, written uh, about Jews of color in the, in the book, um, as well as um, individuals with disabilities, um, and LGBTQ Jews, um, all, all these topics, which we are, are groups of people who we typically think about or come up around uh, 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 discussions around diversity. But in some ways, there are also very many surprising chapters. We have chapters about um, Israel-Palestine and how do you talk about differing political opinions there? Uh, a chapter about arts and culture programming. What does that look like? Uh, music, social justice dues and fundraising, millennials, all of these different categories and, and, and ways that people identify or engage with an institution that have touch points in which how they feel or are welcomed or, or, or can engage with the institution can, can actually be an unpleasant experience if not handled correctly. So, uh, so we have a lot of ways of dealing or thinking about diversity and inclusion at the same time, we are explicit. We explicitly say that there are many topics that we could cover, and and Miriam has a chapter, and she can talk more about it. It's called "Almost Everything Else," in which we try and throw in, get other things we couldn't maybe de devote whole chapters to, and we acknowledge that if anyone feels uh, excluded, because that's what we want to do by something that we left out. We, we, we want you to know that um, we do see you and, and that there's still always room for more expansion on these things. Um, but no book can, be, uh, can, be, can do everything, um, but we are proud of the ways in which it does encapsulate so many different uh, uh, points of view. And the, the last thing I'll say is um, these chapters are written by people from um, both really established voices in the Jewish community, as well as a lot of up and coming rising stars uh, and trying to show, again, the diversity of experience as well. One thing that I think is really notable is that one of the ways that we got to many of these authors is through personal connections. Um, and that is both an expansive way of showing sort of the network that Warren and I have built as professionals. 
and also a way of showing the limitations. We don't generally have people that we did not ha otherwise have some tangential connection to, right? And that's one of the powers, I think, of working in the Jewish community and being connected. And it's also, in fact, one of the issues that is talked about in the book. What if you, you know, what if you're a Jew by choice and you don't have the Jewish geography to play with people about where you went to camp because you became Jewish in your, you know, mid thirties kind of thing. Um, so we recognize both that that's a strength and a limitation uh, that there are many personal connections between us and the contributors, not exclusively, I should also say, um, but largely that is one way that we got to, to contributors. Um, in terms of the everything else chapter, as Warren said, it is not all inclusive. Nothing can be. Uh, but I believe that both in the different sections of my chapter, as well as the other chapters written by the other contributors, there are universal lessons that you can take. Um, so some of the specifics are really targeted towards the topic of each individual chapter. And some of the broader issues can be relevant across the board. Um, and so even if you don't see the particular issue that is most salient in your community or the identity that has been a reason that you yourself has felt excluded from Jewish communities. I really do think there are many, many universal lessons uh, that can be brought that can be brought out from the individual chapters and applied more broadly. Warren gave a, a great list of chapters that may be surprising in terms of topics re regarding inclusion. And I just also wanted to highlight uh, the chapter on marketing, because I think that for a lot of people, they say, what is a chapter on marketing doing in a book about inclusion? Um, and I, I love all the chapters. I really genuinely do. I love this one in particular because it's so, it is so surprising and it highlights the fact that the way that our organizations communicate with people can absolutely make or break whether they even walk in the door and you have a chance to welcome them in person in the first place. Uh, what your website says, what pictures, and this certainly ties into other demographic chapters, who is pictured? In, on your website and in your publicity materials, how things are worded. Um, you know, if you have a registration form and it has gender binary options for identity or, you know, or it asks for, you know, your mother's Hebrew name, again, going back to Jews by choice, right? There are so many ways that your values are communicated to your potential constituents before the opportunity that they might even walk through your doors. And so I just wanted to bring that up because I think every time I look back at that chapter, I learn something new. Uh, and I really believe that for Jewish professionals out there, there's so much to take from all the chapters, but, but that one in particular holds a special place in my heart in terms of the surprising ways that inclusion uh, can be reflected, you know, pre-event. Yes, you, you can't overestimate the importance or the message that a brochure sends or a website sends, or, you know, or, um, but it's funny what you, what you said about marketing. It also made me think, um, I mean, there is definitely a, a balance between digital and analog in, in, in your book that I think is, is, is really being felt in the, in the Jewish world right now. And, 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 some of the some of actually the in-person stuff really, really interested me. Like I think Edith Klein's chapter on LGBTQ Jews and and and, and individuals um talked about the importance of 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 doing a, a building walkthrough. I, I don't know if she I don't remember if she actually mentioned uh 
a digital the digital audit as well and and how you know trying to imagine how the how the space might look to a, a, a transgender teen or 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 a or or a, you know a teen who fits any any of the falls into any of those categories and and um which which i was i was thinking about could could really be a grave matter if if you're talking about um she she cites the um the statistic of 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 uh, an alarming number of transgender teens self-reporting suicide attempts so this is this is really serious and and um we we've also just uh, reconstructing Judaism has just finished a pilot program in which um uh, regarding um more more on the Jews of color and DEI side of things and and congregations that participated did their walkthrough of their building what what does what could this building look like to a Jew of color and how it, so I guess I don't know I guess can you can you talk about what you know or have learned of, of building walkthroughs and what could be learned through them, you know, regard, you know, maybe regardless of the, of the population you have in mind? That was sure. a, a, I, long, yeah. a, long, a long-winded way to ask No, I really appreciate that. And it's so wonderful to see Reconstructing Judaism on the forefront of a lot of this work. I really appreciate, appreciate the work that the organization is putting into it, the movement is putting into it. And, you know, I'm excited for the the way that reconstructing Judaism is modeling that for the broader Jewish world. So, so thank you for that, for sure. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is actually the chapter on Jews with disabilities. Um, and Gabby Kaplan Mayer does an amazing job of talking about some of the barriers in physical buildings. Uh, you know, I live in Center City, Philadelphia, and there are old buildings that are that pose many challenges in terms of accessibility um, for people with, with physical disabilities. And, you know, I, so I think that's sort of a, a, a very obvious one to be able to do a walkthrough and see where are the places where a person in a wheelchair simply couldn't get to. Um, I think there's another aspect of this, which is to say leaders in an organization should do the kind of walkthrough that you're talking about, but they should do them with the people that they are trying to reach. Um, and so it's not enough for me as a white, cisgendered, able-bodied person to walk through and say, I think this might be a problem. You know, I really want to be in conversation with the people who would be impacted by various limitations of a building uh, and figure that out. You know, I think when we talk about millennial Jews, um, there are many aspects of how how buildings are set up that might really speak to an older crowd. Um, there are also things that you know could speak to people with children or without children, depending on kind of what accoutrements are around um, in a synagogue in particular, but also a JCC or you know any other kind of of Jewish space that we might be talking about. Um, so. Again, I think there's a lot that can be learned from that kind of walkthrough in all of these, in all of these different areas. Um, and just like we really wanted to make sure that the chapters were written by people for whom the issues were directly impacting them, this, the same would be true for a walkthrough or any kind of initiative that an organization would undertake. Uh, it is not enough for people to speculate on what might serve people in other demographics. It really has to be in conversation uh, 
one of the things that comes up several times in the book also is who is on your board? Who is in positions of leadership to be making those decisions that could potentially impact people? And, you know, that's, that's a huge factor also in figuring out how are you reaching people is who are you holding up as, as leaders in your community who help make the decisions that would impact the people you're trying to attract. Okay, if you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Check our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings and reviews really help other people find out about the show. Okay, now back to our interview with Warren Hoffman and Miriam steinberg Egith. I want to stick with buildings for a second. I'm, I'm like in the last century for, for some reason, um, but they're, they're still important. Um, I, think, I think the topic of greeters comes, comes up a couple times. And I've just always been struck by this. What, there, was, there was a time when I was a reporter where I was assigned to cover an event at an evangelical church. And there's, there's a million reasons I could have been uncomfortable in that, in that situation or self-aware. And I was, I was welcomed by a greeter at the parking lot and sort of steered directly to where I had to go. And, and it, could have been, it could have been in my face and uncomfortable, but it just, it just came across as genuinely friendly. And, and, and just I've always wondered, why can't, why can't synagogues do this? But I'm also wondering, like with all the different sensitivities that are that are outlined in this book is it is it too much to put on a, on a, on an untrained on an unpaid volunteer or even a paid volunteer to 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 have the expertise in all 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 these different areas it's a great question and a really complicated one and a complex one on one hand in general i would personally say that Greeters are a great thing um, to have those those one-to-one touch points. Um, but yes, people do need training. And uh, uh, Gamal Palmer, who wrote the chapter about Jews of color, talks about how, if not handled correctly, um, that greeters can, uh, for some Jews of color, uh, actually uh, create a, 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 an environment where uh, Jews of color might not actually feel welcome if it feels like they're being interrogated. That's what that's what we don't want with anybody, right? We want people to be welcomed and not say, "Why are you here?" or something. That's that's clearly not good. Um, he gives this great example of how you know, sadly nowadays, uh, many institutions have to have security. That for many people is actually the first moment, the first touch point physically in which they're going to 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 pass into a building, and. He talks about how security can be trained and 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 learned not just to 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 so they're not doing let's say racial profiling, but how they can be say they can say something as simple as about shalom, welcome. So they're not just providing the service, but they're part of the process of welcoming. But um, I, I want to actually say one quick but important thing, and I know it's maybe not entirely built into what your question was thinking or asking. Um, in talking about buildings, it goes, that question makes the assumption that a building or a physical space is central to community. And the idea is that only if we could only get people into the building, right, everything would be okay. And that's actually not 
always true. And and Mike Yoram's chapter, Rabbi, Rabbi Mike Yoram's chapter, Yoram's chapter about um, new ways of building community. He talks about the ways in which there are other communities and and ways that people are identifying outside, physically outside of. Jewish communal institutions and how it really behooves us to not, it's not just about inviting people in and making them feel welcome, but how do we go out to people and meet people literally physically where they are? And, you know, particularly for a synagogue, you know, so much of it it is for them is about, we need more members, we need butts and seats. And we understand that from a, maybe from a financial perspective, they have to pay bills and there's, there's a budget, but that's not what the mission of an institution is, of a synagogue, to use that as an example. It's not right. how many butts do we have in seats, but are we, how are we cultivating Jewish community? And, and what might that look like for programming not to happen in that space, to, to meet people where they already are out in the world? That's hard, also hard work and, and scary work for some people that doesn't feel maybe um, where they're most comfortable. So just something else to think about when we talk about buildings. I wonder, I mean, going through all this, um, I would think a reader would come up with, um, would feel like there's a lot of work to do. And I I wonder how you caution against feeling overwhelmed by that work. And and, and if you give any advice in, in terms of priority forming, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've heard it, I've heard it said aloud, like if we, if we focus on Jews of color, we're 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 not we're 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 prioritizing over Jews with disabilities, or or which we didn't even talk about yet was is inter interfaith families, which shouldn't shouldn't feel like a, a marginalized community with seventy two percent of Jews being married since. 2000 or, or, you know, being married to a non-Jew, it's, it's, it's the majority, but yet there, there's a chapter on inner, inner faith in, in here for very good reasons. So just how do you talk about making priorities that doesn't, you know, exacerbate, you know, other groups being marginalized? Great. I really appreciate you bringing this up. And certainly we don't want people to come away from this with a sense of hopelessness that there's so much to do that there's, there's nothing they can do right now. Right. There is. Every organization has some starting point. Uh, as I said earlier, organizations are at different places on sort of their journey uh, towards inclusion and diversity. And wherever you are, there's more you can do today. And I really encourage, and Warren and I both have talked to organizations, and I really encouraged organizations to think in the framework of what can we do right now that are changes that we can just make ourselves, things we can do today. What are changes that we might be able to work up to in the next one to six months? And what are changes that, you know, we can look at for the next two to five years? Um, And those are really kind of the timelines that I encourage people to think about uh, because really of the pace of how Jewish communities work, uh, because of the budgeting process that largely will factor in for some of the bigger changes that may be necessary, you know, whether it's hiring staff to focus on diversity or you know, organizing trainings for volunteers or construction projects for you know, ramps and elevators and things like that. Um, one example of a thing that I think organizations can do this very coming Shabbat um, is if there's a sense in your community that 
young children are not welcome, which happens frequently. You know, any any rabbis who are listening to this, anyone who speaks from from the bima, from the front of the congregation, if you hear a child, you have the opportunity to say from the bima, from the front of the congregation, we're so glad to have you here. Everyone is welcome. You know, I've heard more than once a rabbi say, that baby is praying along. And it goes a long way for the congregation feeling like, oh, we don't have to turn around and stare at that baby because the rabbi has already said that baby is welcome. You know, that doesn't take an investment. That doesn't take a board meeting. That takes the rabbi saying it in front of the congregation. Um, In terms of, you know, some of the longer term projects, um, again, some of them do require a budgetary investment and some of them, you know, require kind of an internal culture shift. Who you invite to be on your board is something you can start thinking about right now, but it might be, you know, six months until your board has a turnover and and can invite, you know, someone who's in an interfaith marriage or someone who's in their 20s or a Jew of color to join the board. Um, But having those conversations now is a step. Uh, The other thing I really want to say is having conversations like this with the leadership of your Jewish organization is a step along the way. Giving people the opportunity to air where they think you're being successful and where they feel like there's room for improvement is a step in the process. Um, We've created a discussion guide for organizations to use internally as they read through the book, hopefully with their boards and their lay leadership, as well as their staff. Um, And it asks some really probing questions. And it asks, you know, where do you think you're being successful and where are you lacking? And it also asks organizations to think about their own priorities. So a chapter that might speak directly to one organization may not feel as relevant to another. Um, And so, well, you know, we think that every chapter has relevance. Not every chapter is going to be equally relevant to every organization. And that also kind of, I think, helps with the overwhelm that you might feel when reading the book is to say, you know, maybe the chapter on music isn't relevant to you if you're not an organization that has any sort of prayer space. Uh, You know, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe if you're an organization whose mandate is to serve older adults, the chapter on millennials is less relevant. Um, So there are, there are ways to kind of parse it out so that you don't feel like every chapter has to be addressed immediately. Um, And also, you know, the leadership of each organization, you know your organization the best. So you know where the priorities are and you know what your resources are and where you can start. But again, every organization has something that you can do today, this week, that will be a move towards greater inclusion. Okay, well, we have just another couple seconds of your time. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and give us a gift. Every gift matters. There's a donate link right in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. All right, now back to our interview. Are there examples you could you could point to um, in your own experience or, or professionally of just really positive systematic change, you know, happening where, where you've, you've seen a community really become more welcoming, commit to it and, you know, and make, you know, I mean, cause I don't, 
I don't want this all to seem like, like an impossible ask. So I contributed a chapter to the book about uh, minions, independent Jewish uh, prayer gathering communal spaces. Um, and and Miriam and I, I think, first met at a, at a minion. Is that right? I think that's right. Many, yeah. many years Min- ago, Brian. Right, right. Uh, and Miriam is also the... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I helped to create a minion. Miriam helped to create a minion. It's, it's a movement <laughs> that we are both very much invested in. And, you know, it's a chapter that many people might sort of gloss over because they would say, this is not something that interests me. I'm not in a minion. What, what does this have to do? And with me, and what... The reason I wanted to include this in the book is that I find that the Minion and Havara movement, um, again, these independent uh, movements in which people often come together in, in, in individuals' houses to, to pray, to have, Shabbat, to have Shabbat services, a potluck, um, are spaces in which the smallness of the group can model ways in which people can can create really authentic connections to each other and be seen um, and and have their full selves perhaps um, be incorporated into a group in ways in which larger organizations sometimes struggle. And so there are different examples I give in that chapter of, of things that one could extrapolate out to uh, how do we work with volunteers? Uh, how do we welcome people? Um, how do we make decisions in a way, and communally, right, that make people feel in- included in those conversations? So uh, this stuff is happening um, in different places and uh, just some better than others. Uh, just Gamal Palmer uh, gives, uh, in his Jews of Color chapter, talks about great work that ICAR, uh, a congregation community out in LA, is doing to make Jews of Color feel sure. really welcomed by having them as full participants at the table and in the programming that they're doing. So there are people doing this work and the book very much is not just about castigating people or saying, here's what you've done wrong, but really of showing examples of, of success and, and ways that people actually, there are a lot of very concrete tips and strategies that the book also gives from each of the uh, chapters about how people can go off and do these things. This is a great opportunity also to talk about the education chapter, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, which is written by Beverly Socher Lerner, um, who is the founding director of Macomb Community here in Philadelphia, which is a Jewish after-school program. And I think Macomb Community is a really wonderful example of an organization that is doing a lot of this stuff so right. Um, and similar in some ways to the, the independent minions that Warren mentioned, um, the newness of Macomb Community and sort of the, the startup mentality of a smaller organization allows for a lot of flexibility that we know that legacy organizations have a harder time making some moves on. Um, one of the things that comes up in Beverly's chapter on education is Macomb Community's really extensive intake form. And this is something where it, it speaks to how to create community with parents, even though children are the the sort of end user primarily for Macomb community, parents are really seen as absolute partners in the work. Um, And the intake form is, or the intake sort of questionnaire uh, for new families is, first of all, so in-depth and so inclusive. It's really 
it's really beautiful. And second of all, it can be used by many, many different organizations, not just educational ones. So I think that's a great chapter also that illustrates kind of the universality of a lot of the work in this book. Um, but I say this both as, you know, the editor where this chapter on education is included, but also full disclosure, my children attend Macomb community. So I have seen it from both directions. Um, and the ways in which children with different needs and families with different backgrounds are fully, fully embraced and welcomed into Macomb community is honestly a shining example that all organizations should see in terms of making everyone feel as if whatever kind of Judaism or Jewish experiences they are bringing to the table are perfect the way they are. And your family is perfect the way it is and welcome and able to learn and be involved and included. So uh, that's a great example for anyone looking for, you know, an organization that really is doing this well. And again, I should also say many, many of our contributors are affiliated with organizations that are doing this work really well, you know, 18 Doors and Keshet and Moisha House and, you know, to name only a small number and Hillel's across the country um, are all examples of organizations that really hold up these values as intrinsic to the work that they're doing. And I, I'm sorry. And one more thing I also want to say, um, many synagogues, many legacy organizations, many JCCs are really taking this work seriously and, and looking for ways, even, even small examples. Um, the arts and culture chapter, again, is, is a great example of showing ways within sort of a more mainstream programming year to include other voices and include other people as decision makers who haven't maybe been sort of the mainstream leaders. Um, so there are many positive examples, both in the book and out there in the world. Um, and I don't want anyone to feel slighted or like we have, we have missed you because there really are so many examples of people doing this well. And I say this as many times as anyone will allow me to say it, wherever you are and however well you're doing it, there is also more you can do. Miriam, in, in your chapter that was um, excerpted in, in the Evolve essay, you, you talk about unintended consequences, I believe, that you know, attempt, it's possible that in attempting to make change for one group, you might actually create more barriers for, for other people. And I was wondering if you could give an example and if you just have any general advice, either how to anticipate or, or mitigate, you know, trying to do good and things don't go exactly as you, as you plan or hope. Absolutely. So I have two examples. One is the use of technology, which can help some people either to access because of visual impairment or hearing impairment or, or some other reason um, that technology can be a great accessibility tool for some people. And for some people who may be religiously observant in a way that um, excludes their use of technology on Shabbat and holidays, that can in itself be ex exclusionary. So that is one way where synagogues in particular, I think is where this comes up, but other organizations as well, um, need to figure out what their priorities are, need to communicate transparently with their constituents about how they're making decisions and who's involved in making the decisions and how it plays out. Um, and knowing that not everything that an organization does can meet the needs of every person. Um, one other example, and then, and then I'll get back to the advice piece a little bit. 
um, which is that when an organization goes out of its way to be welcoming to families with young children, which is something I think is hugely important, they can sometimes, as a byproduct of that, be exclusionary to either 20-somethings who are sort of in the pre-children stage or to older adults who have chosen not to have children. And so, you know, I, I mentioned this when we were talking about building walkthroughs, but if a 20-something right out of college walks into a building and the first thing they see is a sign for the early childhood program and a setup of toys at the front of the sanctuary, you know, that would read very different to a young parent than it would to a 20-something who's looking to see if this community belongs to them. So, you know, there are optics that will speak to some groups and will not speak to others. Um, and I think, you know, that's sort of an example where you can't exactly meet both needs at once. In terms of how to reconcile that, organizations need to know who they are. They need to know who they are prioritizing. And unfortunately, a lot of times you do have to make those decisions um, and communicate appropriately. You know, if an organization's website, going back to the marketing piece, if a website has different sections for families with young children and, you know, single adults or whatever, however they choose to categorize it. And again, with all of those things, there are decisions to make about what the labels are and what the language is, but having those things divided up, having specific point people within the congregation or the organization for each of those needs um, can be really meaningful so that if I'm a parent of young child, I know who to reach out to and they're going to kind of speak my language in terms of what is it like to bring a child? What is the Tachabat offering? Um, and for, you know, that 20 something or maybe the 60 something empty nester, there's going to be other touch points and other points of communication about what their needs are. Um, and so, you know, you can't prioritize everyone and uh, you can you can go a long way in sort of saying, we have things for all of you. Um, one other piece I wanted to say about both the interfaith family chapter and the LGBTQ chapter and the Jews of color chapter is all of those, as well as some others, talk about how individuals in certain demographic categories may really benefit from doing programs that are specifically for other people like them. I think this is true for 20s and 30s as well. And so as much as we want to be inclusive and say everyone can come to everything, that's actually not always the best message or the best practice for inclusion. Uh, having spaces that are for Jews of color, we, you know, we read in this chapter and, you know, and know from a lot of the work that's out there that those spaces are really meaningful. Um, spaces that are specifically for families that are, that are interfaith uh, means that they have kind of a safe place to, to be open about what their family's religious life might look like. Um, and the, the authors of these chapters speak really eloquently about that. And so as much as the, the motivation to feel inclusive could be, how do we make everything work for everyone? I don't want that to be the goal. So that, that's another piece of advice is that thinking about how we reach people doesn't always mean that you have to reach them all at the same time in the same place. Warren, I'm not sure if this is if this is half baked or or if I'm onto something, but I was, I guess I was thinking about how some of this work 
it deals with things that are plain and visible and, and some of it is beneath the surface. Like we talk about Jews of color. I mean, a difference that's, that's, you know, by definition visible and, and probably unlike any of the other groups we mentioned really faces a consistent presumption that, that they're not Jewish and have to, you know, that's the first thing that has to be overcome and, and mitigated. And then, uh, another example where we're talking about Jews with disabilities, I, my sense is a, a lot of places have made huge strides with what's visible, although although probably not enough. But there's so much work to do with folks who suffer from anxiety, from mental health issues, things things that just a greeter or anybody wouldn't wouldn't know about unless it was it was shared in Texas somehow. So I don't know if it's a, a same way of, of asking the how to how do you prioritize, but is there a different approach to, to things that are visible versus things that, that can't be seen or easily knowable? It's a great question. And I think what you're talking about to extrapolate out further is, let's to use the example of race for a moment, you know, there's a lot, there, there's been a shift or a focus, I would say in the last few years, about talking about systemic racism, not just sort of points in which, let's say, a hate crime is committed, but what are the ways in which race is, is part of everything we do in society, right? Even the things that we might not sort of see maybe visually at every given moment, but are affecting how people uh, uh, connect and interact and, and just everything in their lives. That's what's going on here with all of these chapters that we're talking about thinking how can institutions think with a critical eye about how they do things, why they do things, what, what do we take for granted? Uh, a, a great example of this, uh, we use a term, uh, we, it's not our term, it's, uh, it's this idea of uh, ashkenormativity. Uh, some of your the listeners might be wondering what this is. It's a term in which that Ashkenazi uh, culture, that's you know Eastern European uh, culture, uh, becomes the normative way in which many Jews uh, identify, and that culture from the food, let's say it's I don't know uh, kugel on Shabbat, or to the use of Yiddish in throwing words around, becomes something that. People just assume everybody's Jewish, everybody talks and identifies this way, but that's not the case. And so it's these ways in which these, these little things become part of the system that we need to take a step back and say, oh, when we use, let's see, a Yiddish word and we don't, uh, we don't uh, translate it for somebody uh, who might be Sephardic, might be uh, a Jew by choice, uh, all of these different things, there are these moments in which, again, people might feel excluded and left out. So I think you're 100% on the mark that it's not just about the initial visible things or categories. It's all these little touch points that can seem small, but that do add up over time. Your book came out a number of months ago now, and I know you've had conversations with it. You've, you've hosted book talks. I'm wondering is, you know, what what each of you have have learned in, in in the months since the book came out, or or if your your perception has changed on, on anything you you covered in it, I think we can talk about 
I'll let Miriam talk about maybe the, the after part. I wanted to say that Miriam and I learned so much in creating the book, that there was so much that we didn't always see or realize. And, and we're both continuing to learn about the needs of different communities. And that's been really, really rewarding. We don't try to speak for any of these individuals uh, and the particular points of view in the book. That was really important to us that we created a book in which there were there were, was a multiplicity of voices, so that that we're bringing more voices to the table and they're each heard, and and we're as much uh, we're, we're students and learners of, of all these chapters as we were the co-editors of this book, and that was very gratifying. Yeah, I want to echo that. Uh, I learned so much through this process. I'm grateful to Warren uh, for the vision that that brought this book into the world and for bringing me onto the project. Um, and really grateful to all of the contributors for sharing their stories and their advice and their you know and their struggles as well, and and their successes, of course. Um, one of the things I've learned in the months since the book came out is how hungry people are for this conversation. You know, we really anticipated that the primary audience for this book would be Jewish professionals. And I think that remains true, but I have been amazed by the number of people who are not Jewish professionals, who themselves are Jews or connected to Jews, um, who have really found, found deep meaning through reading these chapters. And that's been incredible to see um, how widely this has spoken to people and how much people are eager to continue the conversation. So that's been one piece. And then I think, you know, this goes back to something I said at the beginning. I truly believe that organizations all want to be doing these things well. And so I think that, you know, I've seen Jewish professionals who are really grateful to hear in people, in the contributors' own words, what some of the things are that they could be doing better. Um, and also to have a tool that they can bring to board members or you know, professional staff who may not be as committed or as willing to think about what changes may need to be made and to have this book and to be able to hand it to people and to be able to have a conversation as a group and to say, you know, this is out there in the world. This is what other organizations are doing and talking about. And if we want to kind of keep up in the world of Jewish communal, you know, experiences, uh, that these are some of some of the conversations that, that organizations know they need to adopt. Um, the other thing I want to say that we haven't actually touched on yet is that though this book was conceived of before the pandemic, uh, it was almost entirely written during the pandemic. And so some issues in terms of accessibility in all kinds of ways, um, as well as, you know, Warren was talking about people coming to a building, um, many issues of how people access Jewish community have changed dramatically. Sure. Uh, over the course of this book being written. And I think a lot of our contributors speak to that really, really eloquently. Um, and as people are in this sort of stage of emerging, which is the period during which we've been having, you know, our book talks and our conversations, I think organizational leaders are really eager to talk about now that we're sort of restarting. For some people, they really feel like this is a blank slate moment to reimagine what their communities look like. How can we take these issues really seriously? and and use this moment of coming back together, of reconvening in all of these ways to figure out what our ideal community really looks like and how we can best serve the people out there who want to access Jewish experiences and Jewish life. 
Warren and Miriam, thank you. Thank you so much for, for being here for, for this last hour of conversation and, and for creating this invaluable uh, resource that, that I think is going to spark not only a lot of conversations, but, but lead to, to real change. Thanks so much for talking with us and inviting us and uh, glad that Reconstructing Judaism is leading the, the charge and is part of the forefront in, in having these conversations. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you so much. Oh, great. And look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much for listening to our interview with Miriam Steinberg, Egith and Warren Hoffman. So what'd you think of today's episode? Evolve is about conversations and that includes you. Send me your questions, comments, suggestions, whatever you have. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We will be back soon with an all-new episode. The Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilofinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism, I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I'll see you next time.